Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 35. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And he answered them, who are my mother and brothers? And looking around those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. In his Good Friday message way back in 2010, the Sydney Anglican Archbishop of the time, Peter Jensen, said that atheism is a form of idolatry. He said, as we can see by the sheer passion and virulence of the atheist, they seem to hate the Christian God, atheism is every bit of a religious commitment as Christianity itself. He said, it represents the latest version of the human assault on God, born out of a resentment that we do not in fact rule the world and that God calls us to submit our lives to him. He said, it's a form of idolatry in which we worship ourselves. And I have to agree with that. I, I find myself just shaking my head at the way that atheists, particularly the famous atheists of the world today, that the way they're so passionately against God and they're so passionately against Christians. And I just find it's just remarkable. It's like they say that God doesn't exist but they're so filled with hatred towards nothing. It's just bizarre. Where's the logic of that? And just about any, any week you, you can find a letter to the editor in one of the newspapers written by someone who hates God or hates Jesus or hates Christians. And just this week I saw somebody having a rant about a Christian simply because they came in contact with one and they must have shared their faith. And there's a chap in Toowoomba who seems to have made it his life's mission to get chaplains and REs out of the schools. What drives such a person? Why would somebody hate a God that they say doesn't even exist? There's something spiritually go spiritual going on here and it's not something new. It's something that's been around a long time. 
is something that Jesus certainly had to deal with. Today, we're looking at the spiritual battle that lies behind a palpable hatred of Jesus. So, in the Gospel of Mark, up until this point, we've, seen, we've been seeing the local Pharisees and the local scribes generally sparring with Jesus. They're having a go at Jesus, telling him he's no good, and, and Jesus is answering him back. But now, at this point, they've now called in the heavies from head office. All right, so the scribes are brought in from Jerusalem and these scribes make an extremely serious accusation against Jesus. A key sign of the spiritual authority of Jesus has been exorcisms, right? Jesus has been driving demons out of people. But the religious heavies from head office make the accusation that Jesus himself is possessed. And they're saying, this is where you get your power from. And they're saying that Jesus isn't only possessed just by any demon, but he's possessed by the prince of demons, Beelzebul. Uh, by the way, we can just take that as another name for Satan. Right? Um, and so they were saying that the only reason that Jesus could cast out demons was because he himself is possessed by the most powerful of demons, Satan himself. Now, that's a very serious accusation. And so Jesus tells two parables. The first parable exposes the lack of logic to their accusation. And the second parable reveals the good news of what's really going on. He said, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom's divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and he is divided, he cannot stand. But it's coming to an end. Uh, we've got a really good political example of this happening in Australia at the moment. Um, the Labor Party and the Greens are rubbing their hands together with glee because we've just seen division within the ruling parties, haven't we? And why are they rubbing their hands together with glee? It's because they're up against a house that's divided. They're up against a house of parliament that's divided. And they're going, oh, we're going to win the next elections. Now, but let's bring it back to the spiritual. Something we know is sometimes Satan does pretend to do something to be something that's good. Um, in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, Paul says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And he goes on to say, well, there's, that, there should be no surprises then that false teachers, who are actually Satan's agents, also pretend to be godly men and women. Right? So he's saying Satan pretends to be something good. How does he do that? Well, Satan pretends to be a good spirit. But his true intent is to murder, kill and destroy. Um, how does he do this? I mean, even, even in kids' shows today, we hear them talking about, you know, might have a good witch versus a bad witch. Is there any such thing as a good witch? Of course not. Witches, by nature, are Satanists. They worship God. 
I met a fellow once when I was on the roadworks, um, and he was a stop-go man. I thought, oh, sit, oh got a, a bit of spare time. I'll have a bit of a chat to this fellow about Jesus. And um, I started talking with him, and he very quickly showed, he, he said to me, I, I'm a wicker. He said, I said, you what? You're wicked? He said, no, 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 I'm wicker. I'm a wicker. You, you're a wicked? No, 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 wicker. I said, what's wicker? And he explained it to me. It's some kind of naturalist type witchcraft thing. And, and right into, basically, they're worshipping the devil. And then it clicked in my head, oh, so you really are wicked. Okay, I've got it now. Yeah, but, but this fellow had been deceived. He was thinking, oh, I'm into all of this natural stuff and, and this wicker religion, it's all natural spiritualism stuff. And he's convinced that this is something really good. Now, we know that there is only one true God, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we know that any other so-called God isn't a God at all, but it's a demon pretending to be a God. And yet these other gods get portrayed as being good. Um, just saw another example of it um, just recently, but I've been seeing there's a very real concerted push today across the Western media to present numerous other gods as being good as long as they're not the Christian God um, and the number of times in recent years when I've seen TV shows and they've had an episode on Islamic extremism and there's a, some kind of plot of terrorist attack and nearly every time these days one of the goodies will himself be a Muslim and they'll always have a space in that show where that goodie gets to describe, oh, well, that terrorism, that's not true Islam because true Islam's really good and Allah is kind and merciful. I just see that happening in television show after television show. They're just trying to indoctrinate us with it. Um, we just saw it happen in Australia just the last few days. Again, we've had another attack in Melbourne, in Bourke Street. And... Um, I was found myself thinking, yep, I bet it's not long until they come out and say, oh, this isn't the real Islam. But then I was amazed. Our Prime Minister, who is a Christian, by the way, got up and said that we can't ignore the fact that this is Islamic extremism. And he said that yesterday sometime. And I thought, hmm, let's see how long it is until the backlash comes for that. And the headlines in The Australian today said... PM slammed for Islam remarks. And then it went on to describe about how, um, you know, the real good um, Muslims are actually trying to do stuff to combat this. Um, and all of this, of course, is just being fed to us in the name of tolerance. And so we're hearing it over and over and over again. Islam, real Islam is good. Real Islam is good. Real Islam is good. Allah is kind and merciful. They're trying their darndest to say this other God is good. But then we also see something, another push in the name of health. 
to take up Eastern religious disciplines like Tai Chi, yoga, and all sorts of meditations. You know, these are now being very much promoted for their so-called health benefits. And even Christians are starting to take them up and starting to embrace them because they've been told, hey, this is good for you. It'll give you better health. It'll relieve your stress. And people are being told there's nothing wrong with this. What they're not being told, or maybe what they choose to ignore, is these are religious disciplines used in the worship of other gods. You see, Satan tries all the time to pass, him off, pass himself off as something that's good and beneficial. And that's what Jesus is being accused of here. They're accusing Jesus of working in the power of Satan but pretending to be something good. But there's a very important difference. Satan always has the intent of spiritually enslaving those who dabble in the worship of other gods by getting involved in some of these sorts of stuff that I've just mentioned. Be under no illusion. If any of us choose to dabble in the occult by participating in seances or horoscopes or playing with Ouija boards or going to fortune tellers, or if we become participants in the worship of other gods by doing yoga or Reiki or Tai Chi, or if we go down the universalist path and begin to accept that the other worship of other gods is something that's valid, don't be under, uh, something that's valid. Don't be under any illusion. These are all things that Satan uses to spiritually bind us. And participating in these sorts of things and, and even using mind-altering drugs and whatnot gives Satan and his demons a foothold in someone's life. And Satan is not in the business of breaking the demonic bonds he has already established. Satan's aim is to always increase those bonds. We are in a spiritual battle. There are two kingdoms at war, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. You know, when, when Jesus was tempted, the devil took Jesus up on top of the high mountain and he showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and all of their glory. And he said to them, I'm going to give you all of these. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. And Jesus rebuked him. But get this. Jesus didn't rebuke the devil for lying. He rebuked him because he said worship should be reserved for God and God alone. He didn't say to Satan, now hang on a minute, you're offering me something you don't have. He didn't say, these kingdoms don't belong to you. Why didn't he say that? Because essentially they do. Something we need to understand is that in large part, Satan's kingdom in this world today is extensive. Lives bound up in sin. A general rejection of God. Self-focus and self-worship. Religious and spiritual experimentation. Demonic, demonic oppression. Demonic possession. Satan's kingdom in this world today is extensive. His kingdom is strong. 
and its purpose? To claim worship that rightfully belongs to God. That's what he's trying to do. Satan is trying to deflect the worship that should rightfully be given to God, ultimately to himself. And so Jesus exposes the flawed logic of the accusations that the religious heavies were making against him. If a kingdom's divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and he is divided, he cannot stand. But he's coming to an end. See, Jesus wasn't possessed by Satan. Yes, the kingdom of Satan was taking a jolly good battering, but he wasn't doing it to himself. Satan's kingdom was strong and extensive, and Jesus was battering it. Breaking into this world is the kingdom of God. And this is the activity of God that we're seeing take place in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus' second parable reveals what's really going on. He said, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. And then indeed he may plunder his house. The kingdom of God is breaking into this world. The kingdom of God is taking ground away from the kingdom of Satan. And so when Jesus was casting out demons, Jesus was binding the strong man so that the strong man's house could be plundered. This is the spiritual battle that was ultimately fought and ultimately won by Jesus Christ when he was crucified and rose again. When Jesus conquered sin and death on the cross. But it's also a battle that still continues today. It's a battle that will continue until the final victory. When every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But how can that be? How can it be said... That Jesus has won the victory, but the battle continues to rage on today. Well, through what Jesus did on the cross, Satan is beaten. All right, well, why doesn't God just wrap it all up today? Why doesn't he just wrap it all up and Jesus come in his glory? Well, I think it's because our Heavenly Father is giving us time. And he's not only giving us time, he's giving us every chance, every opportunity to turn our hearts towards him as our Lord. You see, I can't blame my rejection of God on Satan because God has limited the power of Satan. If I reject God, the blame of my rejection of God lays squarely at my own feet, exactly where it belongs. It's not Satan's fault. You see, the strong man is bound. His power is limited. By the way, if you want to get a really good expose of this spiritual battle, um, go to Revelation chapter 12 and have a read of Revelation chapter 12. Um, I think it was mid-2017 when we studied Revelation chapter 12. 
and it might be worthwhile revisiting that message again. Just go to www.bushdisciples.church, click on sermons, scroll down to Revelation chapter 12 and get a picture of what's really taking place in the spiritual realm. Anyway, the strong man is bound. His power is limited. And our Heavenly Father is giving us every opportunity to believe in him. And not only to believe in him, but to bow before him and to submit to him as Lord. He's giving us every opportunity for us to surrender our lives to him because he is Lord. The final verse of today's reading says, For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Right? It's not just a matter of believing. To be in the family of God requires submission through loyal obedience to Jesus. Okay, so the date has been set. Nobody knows the date except our Heavenly Father. And when that date arrives, there'll be no more time. There won't be any more opportunities. But until just before the end, Satan is bound. Yes, right at the end, he's going to be released again just for a moment and he'll wreak havoc upon the world. But right up until just before the return of Jesus, Satan is bound. His power is limited. Now, I love this image that we're given here. No one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Now, Jesus has done that. Jesus has bound the strong man. And now we, the disciples of Jesus, can confidently, in the name of Jesus, enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods. Now, what's he talking about here? He's talking about taking the gospel out into the world. Most of this world is currently in the domain of the kingdom of Satan. Now, does that scare you? I hope not. This shouldn't put us off because in the name of Jesus, we go into that domain and we raid that domain. We plunder that domain for the kingdom of God. In Revelation chapter 12, which I mentioned before, verse 11 reveals how Christians conquer Satan. And we sung about it before in the song we just sang. How do Christians conquer Satan? Do you want to be a Christian who can conquer Satan? This is how you do it. By the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Satan has no power over us. We've been set free from sin and death by the blood of Jesus. And so we conquer Satan by continuing on in faith. And by the word of our testimony, God continues to build his kingdom. God raids the kingdom of Satan as we take the good news of Jesus out into the world. That's how we conquer Satan. So, 
If we conquer Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony, how powerful really is the blood of the Lamb? What sins can it overcome? How powerful is the blood of Jesus? Jesus said, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Oh dear. It sounds like there's a sin that can't be forgiven. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now this really used to worry me. Because as a kid, I'd heard my dad say Holy Ghost as a swear word. He'd done it a number of times. And if blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is something that can never, ever be forgiven, does that mean my dad was excluded from any possibility of ever receiving grace? Now, for me, that was a question that I really grappled with as a kid. Um, because particularly in his later years, my dad really loved Jesus. But because he'd blasphemed the Holy Spirit earlier on, does that mean that he was outside of the scope of God's grace? Is there really a sin that once done can never be forgiven? Is the blood of Jesus ineffective? against one particular sin. All right, let's look at this in its context. This, this is probably one of the most difficult verses that some people will ever come up against. What's happening? In its context, Jesus is doing God's work. Jesus is breaking into the kingdom of Satan. Through Jesus, the kingdom of God is plundering Satan's kingdom. But the religious heavies from Jerusalem reject Jesus and they accuse Jesus of working by the power of the satanic. And verse 30 tells us why Jesus said what he said. Jesus says this about the unforgivable sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit being the unforgivable sin. He said it because they were saying that Jesus had an unclean spirit. He said it because they were rejecting Jesus. Not only were they rejecting Jesus, they were hating Jesus and, and, and were right outside of the scope of ever surrendering to Jesus. They were hating him with every fibre of their being. And it occurs to me that what Jesus says here, it's a statement of logic. If faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is the only way that any of us can be saved, if I refuse to see or if I refuse to accept the activity of God in Jesus Christ... I can't be saved. It's a statement of logic. 
if the only way to be saved is through faith in Jesus, but I reject Jesus and hate Jesus, well, I can't be saved. And so, of course, the unforgivable sin, the sin that cannot be forgiven, is this rejection of Jesus. That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. All of the work of the Holy Spirit we can see in the person of Jesus. The source of the power of Jesus' work was the Holy Spirit. And they were attributing it to Satan because they hated God. Now that's what I believe the unforgivable sin is. To see the activity of God in Jesus Christ. To see the Holy Spirit at work and to refuse to see all of the evidence that's before us and reject it as being evil. So let's come back to where we began. What's going on when people hate God? What's going on when people hate Jesus and when they hate Christians? Well, spiritually, they've aligned themselves with Satan. And while they continue to reject Jesus and in all their pride deny that they have a need of a saviour and deny the lordship of Jesus and they deny the activity of God in Jesus, while ever this continues, they cannot possibly be forgiven. But I want you to hear the good news today. For now, right now, Satan is bound. And in the name of Jesus, we can conquer him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Yep, some people might hate God, and that's on them. Our task is to stand firm in the faith, knowing that by the blood of Jesus, Satan cannot hurt us. The worst that Satan can possibly do to you or I is kill our body. How bad is that? Well, if your faith is strong and you know that you go straight to be with Jesus, that's not so bad. That's the worst that he can do is get us to Jesus sooner. And so we stand firm in the faith and we remember that our testimony is powerful. Did you know that? Your testimony is powerful. We plunder Satan's kingdom when we tell, speak out the words of what Jesus has done for us. When we share the gospel. And look, when I'm talking about this, I'm not talking about, you know, you have to have 57 points that you're going to present in a very professional way. All you have to tell, your testimony is simply just to tell somebody what Jesus has done for you. And you understand that, don't you? Now, this is not some kind of airy, fairy fantasy. Your experience of God has the power to plunder Satan's kingdom. Have you ever thought about that? How your experience of God, when it's shared, has the power to plunder Satan's kingdom. Let me put that another way. You telling another person 
of what Jesus has done for you might be exactly what they need to hear to turn their heart to Jesus. And when they do that, their citizenship changes from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. Who's ready to plunder? Anyone ready to plunder? Scott is. Okay, Scott, we're behind you, mate. <laughs> is anybody ready to plunder? Is anybody excited about this? That in the name of Jesus, we can plunder the kingdom of Satan. How? By the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. You know, if, if that was just, we're going to plunder the kingdom of Satan by the word of our testimony, oh, that'd be scary. <laughs> but what comes before that? We plunder it by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we want to thank you that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. We want to thank you for the power of the blood of Jesus. We thank you that when Jesus died on the cross and rose again, he conquered sin and death. We want to thank you, Lord, that by the blood of Jesus that Satan is bound. We want to thank you that we need have no fear of him because the blood of Jesus is so strong and so powerful and that Satan is already defeated. It's just, he's just waiting for his final demise. And Lord, I pray that you would take this knowledge and that you would turn it into a very strong faith inside of our hearts, inside of our lives, so that we would not fear the evil one so that we would not fear the thoughts and the words of those who hate God, so that we would fear nothing as we stand strong in the blood of the Lamb and how by the, the word of our testimony we enable you to plunder the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Satan. Lord, we pray that the kingdom of God in this district and in this town would grow. We pray, Lord, that you would plunder Satan's kingdom in this very town. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in people's hearts and lives today. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in us, increasing our faith and giving us confidence to share the good news of Jesus with those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.